billionaires in boxes, empowering one billion entrepreneurs, one podcast at a time. Billionaires in boxes, steady hustle, no stopping. Making it happen, put words into action, and quitting is never an option. No time to be a loser, gonna live the life that you choose to. Time to make a little money and gain some influence with Phil Palucha. Yeah, you want more sales, wanna be known, wanna get it popping, wanna be a billionaire in your boxes, go from unknown to unrivaled. You talking with the podcast king, globally known, ranked number one in the world, building empires from home. Now it's time to take the throne, time to levitate, help you level up, wanna see your Growth accelerate, yeah, yeah. If that's what you want, making money while you in your box. It sure feel like nothing or nobody is stopping you. Even when I said it, it was impossible. No need for hesitation. Feel P, yeah, that's your man. Go from the best kept secret to the go-to brand. Let's go. Hey, billionaires, billionaires and boxes. Hey, billionaires, billionaires and boxes. Hey, time to grow, make the world know all about ya. Hey, billionaires, billionaires and boxes. Let's go. Hello and welcome to this edition of Billionaires in Boxes with me, your host, Phil Palucha. I am joined by the wonderful and beautiful Rochelle Walsh. Rochelle, I'm, I'm really delighted that you're here. Uh, as per usual, when we get talking, we've had about 35 minutes, which is about the length of this podcast, uh, in what I like to call the virtual green room. I always enjoy our conversations, but I'm glad that we're finally here. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Phil. Thank you so much for having me here today. You are. Um, yeah, me too. It's going to be a lot of fun. You're most very welcome. And uh, for, for our audience that haven't come across you, I mean, where have you been would be my first question for them. But for those of them that haven't come across you and your work yet, why don't you give us a, a bit of an idea of, of who you are and what you do? Okay, Phil. Well, I help female entrepreneurs get out of their head so that they can safely experience their emotions and truly enjoy their hard-earned success. So too many people are just caught in their heads and unable to really experience emotions. And so while they might look like they have everything together on the outside, inside, they're just, they're overwhelmed. They're overwhelmed. Mm, I think a lot of people can relate to that. Absolutely. Uh, right. Who are listening to this and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm completely with you. So um, you are incredibly well qualified. You've been doing this for a very long time and I know your work is, is evolving and changing to support more and more people globally. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. So I have been in clinical therapy for over 20 years now. That ages me, but I, my clinical specialty is EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. But basically that's a way of retraining your brain to get unstuck from longstanding patterns of trauma or anxiety. So I really have learned a lot about um, how to heal the brain, the mind and the body. And so I've worked with many clients over the years. I've also, you know, gone through my own challenges in my own life as we all do. And so learned a lot from that process as well. And just really feel impassioned to help people get unstuck from chronic patterns that they don't understand and that they've been stuck doing talk therapy or um, self-help for years. I just really like being able to help people just have that weight lifted so that they could enjoy. And, you know, I think so many times people are very successful and they are very, um, the, you know, the successful people and the people that are serving everybody in their life, they fly under the radar. Nobody mm. complains about the person that's overworking or, well, maybe their spouse or over serving. But, you know, if you're out there causing trouble or things are falling apart, it draws attention to the problem where people that are high functioning, and doing well for others and achieving their distress often goes so unnoticed. So 
yeah, it's been, it's been a great career. I love it. And I love just connecting with people. It's an interesting point, actually, because it reminds me of um, an interview that I saw with uh, the the late, great and deceased uh, Robin Williams, who said that often the, the the people that make people laugh the most are the saddest people. Right. Um, and, and you're right, aren't you? I think if somebody's out there causing trouble, you know, they're, they're quite clearly having issues, then it's almost pretty easy to spot, okay, that person probably needs some help. Right. But actually those people who are having a very successful career, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not carrying around trauma. They're not carrying around baggage. I did have a question actually, because I was curious as you were speaking, nobody chooses to, to develop trauma and hold on to it. Like nobody wants to hold on to these things. So, so how does that happen? And then in your work kind of, I mean, I appreciate this is quite a deep question, but yeah. how, how does that begin to happen? And how do you, does you and your work sort of unpick that and unravel it? Well, first of all, I'd like to say so many people have experienced, you know, trauma that didn't happen, not just the trauma that did. And Mm -hmm. so, yes, nobody chooses that. But so many things early in life, you know, from in utero to just, you know, ages of six to seven, you know, when our kind of our autopilot and our subconscious mind, we are just being downloaded a program. And so oftentimes people dismiss their own pain because they say, well, you know, I always had food or shelter, or it's not like I was beaten if they weren't beaten, or Mm. they always find something worse that happened to somebody else. But one of the things, you know, interestingly enough, is that there was a still face experiment. A lot of times I showed a client just to help them kind of um, understand and validate their experience where they are having this mom interact with this baby you know, and just say, oh, like cooing back and forth. And then they have her just stop. And within just a matter of, I think it's a minute or two, the baby loses dysregulation in her body. She starts to squeal her, you know, her emotions become dysregulated and the mother isn't pinching her. She's not scowling her. Nothing scary is happening. They didn't shut the lights off. You know, all it was is the absence of emotional attunement. And in that very short period of time, the nervous system becomes so dysregulated. And then they have the mom say, I'm here, I'm here, baby, and and resume what was normal. And the baby recovers very quickly. But sometimes there wasn't recovery or we grew up in homes where there was generational trauma and maybe nothing really bad happened. Mm. But what didn't happen is that it didn't have a capable adult who was able to really emotionally attune and be with them. And so the experience of emotions or being Mm -hmm. became very overwhelming and they learn to maybe be funny, maybe learn to be the achiever, maybe learn to be the pleaser. They learn to do something that was highly adaptive Mm -hmm. because I want, I need, I feel is too much if those needs aren't getting met. So as kids, we are just God made us exceptionally adaptive. So we were able to say, okay, how do I feel safer? Oh, I feel safer in being funny. I feel safer in achieving. I feel safer in making sure everybody's okay. Mm. And so I help people when they come to me say, your symptoms are not your weaknesses. This was something amazing that your mind and your brain did that you don't need anymore because now you're safe. So those vulnerable parts that needed to think and feel and be seen and be comforted and soothed, those vulnerable parts got stuck back there. 
We had to Mm. shut those off because it was too painful. And so helping reintegrate that so that the person can be safe in their body and can meet their own emotional needs. Because we we meet our own emotional needs instinctively unless we have learned to do something different. We respond to our own emotional needs the way our primary caregivers responded to our emotional needs. Until we do something different. That's fascinating. Okay. That makes a whole lot of sense then. So we could talk about that for like four or five hours just on its own because that won't be like we, we, could, we really could um yeah. that i mean that that's fascinating but I, and what i'm curious about is uh, i imagine that people don't recognize that that's what it is right you know when when they come to you for help i mean is it that most people aren't going to come to you and say well i think right. this was something that i learned when i was six or seven years old and it's something right. in, in integral so how does it manifest itself and, and, and what do people typically do with you that? know what they say is I, you know maybe i can't sleep you know i feel edgy or i just go 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 and then i shut down and then sometimes i just feel like i can't get out of bed or i'm stuck in my head and i think that is where so much because again most of the people that i see are you know, they are, they're thinkers, they're solvers, they're, they want to be a good wife, a good mom, they want to be successful in their business. And so they're thinking, so there's, you know, they have self-help books and they listen to podcasts and they do the Bible studies. And sometimes it can be all the more frustrating because they know how they should think about something and they think that for other people, or they know where they should believe. It just does not feel true for them. So, Mm. so they can be very, accomplished giver server and yet feel like at their core there's this lack of worth inherent worth and so they just feel overwhelmed by all the things they're doing and they can't shut their brains off and so many of the strategies it's good information right they're like accumulating all this information in their frontal lobe what they hear what they read what they see what they teach their kids what they say to their employees they they have a very strong frontal lobe but the problem is the frontal lobe is not where the overwhelm is. Right. The alarm all happens in that lower part of our brain, uh, the amygdala, which turns on our fight or flight, which turns on inflammation to help us protect ourselves and guard. And so when the, um, and if I go too much into this, you need to just redirect me, tell me, but basically when no, no, everything perceived comes in, right, it goes to our amygdala first before it, the, the part of our brain that takes in information is the thalamus. It sits very close to this um, amygdala that says, is this dangerous? Yes or no. Right. And it turns it on. And when your brain determines something's dangerous, you can't outreason it. And so all these cognitive strategies that we have, they're essentially our brain is hijacked. It for our protection, if we needed to get out of a burning building, we don't have time to reason, like, oh, do I really have on the property? <laughs> yeah, stairs, right? No, we just got to get out. So um, and so our brain protectively blocks off our reasoning so that we can respond quickly. Right. Or if we're walking in a dark alley and all of a sudden there's, um, you know, a shadow that scares us, right? That's not a reasoning thing. That's an instinctive thing. And so much of what we do is instinctive. And so being caught in our head and using these top brain strategies, trying to reason it, trying to explain why 
is, is trying to work this when there's nothing wrong with this, there's Mm. nothing wrong with your reasoning. You're perfectly intelligent. You're perfectly capable. You're perfectly faithful enough, you know? And, and because that leads to so much shaming, like, why can't I just do it? I know it. Or why can't I just feel it? I know I believe it. And so then there becomes a lot of shame and frustration. And so we have this war inside, you know, don't feel that way. And that inner critic really can get people um, discouraged by, gosh, stop being such, you know, stop being so weak, or why can't you just get a handle on this or other people compliments, things that come in, our brain just dismisses it because it feels not true. And so when we spend a lot of time Mm -hmm. in talk brain strategies, and I think a lot of talk therapy lands here, you can be talking over the same issue again and again and again, actually strengthening the patterns of distress without really getting to the root of the problem. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think where people really get stuck and it's oftentimes a safer place to be, because I think this, another thing that really comes up is it's just, as I explained earlier, a lot of times it just isn't comfortable to be with the emotions. I had Mm. someone say to me one time, you know, I have all the tabs open in my brain all the time, but spreadsheets are easier than emotions and relationships. That's very true. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I think you, you touched on many great points there. And I think what, you know, trying to use rationale and logic to almost argue with a feeling is never going to work, is it? Because you know why you feel something. It's like, you know, the, an example that I could use is you could make a list of all the reasons why you love your spouse and find another person who would do all of those things for you. It doesn't mean that you're going to love them because feeling and logic are two completely different things. Exactly. On paper, I should feel something, but I don't. Um, it's really interesting because when you were talking actually, and then I I resonated a lot with that. My audience now, I'm always very honest. And we were talking, um, before coming on air about, uh, my, my struggle with long COVID for, for a good period of time. And (laughs) it was almost like you were living in my head when you were talking then, because that was exactly what I did. I was, I spent the entire time torturing myself. Why can't I just get over this? This is, this is like, I know what I need to do. I need to just push. Why can't I get myself to do it? And again, even the compliments thing, you know, uh, I'm very blessed to, to be very good at what I do. And, and we get a lot of people complimenting us, but I pay more attention to the one negative comment rather than the, the 200, 300, 400 positive comments, right. um, which is one of the reasons I don't manage my own social media anymore. Because <laughs> when we release things, people right. are like, this is great. This is great. This is great. One person's like, this guy is an idiot. I'm like, well, maybe he's right. Maybe I am an idiot. I listen exactly. to that person. Um, and COVID was the worst one for that because I was in these support groups where, you know, we weren't getting much support from the medical professionals, but we were getting support from each other and we were all saying the same things. And then I'd go into social media and see some genius saying, and I say that flippantly, um, right. oh, it's it's just a flu, like get on with it. Like I took some orange juice and I was fine. And I'm thinking like, and, and it was those comments that used to grind on me, but they'd be the ones that I play over and over in my head, not the positive things that somebody had said in the support group. So it's interesting. I can, I can certainly see how that happens and how it manifests. Right. And that, you know, self-compassion is a big piece of that because there's something called meta emotion. So what's the emotion about the emotion <laughs> or okay. what's the cognition about the, the metacognition? What's the thought about the thought? So um, the metacognition would be, okay, I'm sad. What's the metacognition about being sad or I need help or I'm feeling desperate or I'm hurting. Now, if your meta emotion is I feel weak or there's a part of you that says, stop 
feeling this way, or why can't you just get over it? Or nobody wants to hear you cry. Or, you know, then we have this internal distress that amps up the overwhelm. And so teaching people how to be their own emotional soother so that when emotions come up, they can lead with compassion rather than judgment makes it so much easier because we have this thing called reticular activation, which means whatever that program is, we look for it and we will find it. So if I am looking for a car and I've decided I want a new Toyota Highlander, all of a sudden I start seeing Toyota Highlanders. Yeah, okay. Can't, yeah. Can't, can't look at all the information. We have to generalize delete, distort. This is so important. So all the information comes out, we generalize, delete, distort and say, what fits, what's true for me. Okay. Right. So, so we almost, if you're, if, if the track that you're playing is negative, you look for things that reinforce that negative exactly. standpoint. Okay. And that's so much, you know, there's been so much, well, I don't know so much in my world. I think there's more attention being brought to the subconscious mind. You know, the subconscious mind is, you know, 95%, it overrides the conscious thought. So we have to do mindset work. The problem I see with that is that, um, well, I say problem. I'm going to say mindset is huge. I'm not, it's, it's huge. It's part of rewiring your brain. But you have to be able to feel it. So when people go in yes. and go, oh my goodness, I, I, this is the belief that I'm holding about myself. What's the emotion about that? So, and that's one of the things that really, I think, keeps people on this mental track or up here for so long is one that's being taught and that's all over and it's easier to acquire. Two, it's more comfortable for them. But three, it's like, I don't want to feel it. I don't know how to feel. It. And people have said to me so often, I'm afraid if I feel it, the floodgates are going to open. It's like, I'm going to be washed out. Yeah, to sleep. I can I'm going to be for three days, or I have to leave here and be able to function. I still have a yeah. job, with my kids, right? So the emotion, they feel the emotion is too big, which usually means it's coming from a very small part. It's a very old thing, but trauma has more timestamp. Mm. So like, it doesn't matter how long it's been there. It, you feel it in the original form. Mm. And so you do need to, but, um, and yeah, and that's why I think, again, mindset is great, but you have to be able to experience it because trauma and emotional dysregulation. And I'm going to say it is trauma, but a lot of people will say, well, I didn't have trauma. I didn't have trauma. So if you can just think about trauma as dysregulation or not having emotional sure. needs, Oftentimes that's where it comes from because people aren't ready yet oftentimes to say, oh, I had trauma, you know, mm. uh, for many different reasons. And so well, we no, nobody wants to feel like a victim, do they? Especially when you're right. a successful, fully right. you know, functional person. You don't want to be turning up saying, well, the reason I feel like this is because I was a victim at this stage. Nobody wants to feel that way. No. Um, and it's the it's the feeling aspect that, that really gets me with this, because the thing that came to mind instantly when you were saying it, and I'm sure many of my listeners can relate to this, too, because we've, we've all done it, particularly if you've done all this self-help stuff is I mean, I remember a few years ago when affirmations were huge and yes. they would make you write out this list of affirmations and look at yourself in the mirror. And I did it. I did it for like 90 days. And it didn't, it didn't work for me. And I'll tell you why it didn't work for me. It didn't work for me because I stood in the mirror and I'd come out with a statement. And as I'm looking at myself, my head would go, no, you're not. 
Like, so that's what's good. So I'm saying the words and my head's right. going, that's not true. That's no, that's You're definitely not true. Here. Yeah, precisely. Right. So, so the, the voice in my head is, is just completely causing, it was a completely pointless exercise, right. really, because I'm, I'm saying it, my brain's going, no, you're not. That's not true. So if you don't feel it, you're you're not going to be able to get those. Res- I mean, we're talking about manifesting results with affirmations and things, but even so, you're not going to be able to manifest those results unless it's attached to a feeling. And that makes total sense as to why the same would also be yeah. said for trauma and, and overcoming trauma. Bottom brain wins. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like you can say whatever you want to say to yourself. If it doesn't feel true and it doesn't resonate in your body and you don't, and, and remembering that those barriers, I always tell people like these symptoms, these things you don't like, they are great resiliencies. Like you are so resilient. These are great resiliencies. They're just outdated. Maybe at one point you had to shut everybody out. Maybe at one point it wasn't safe to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Maybe at one time you had to be your own self-critic so you could avoid harsh treatment from other people right? So you could avoid making a mistake. So you were going to point out your own flaws before other people could do it. Sure. Okay. Right. So bottom brain wins every time. And so you do really have to feel it to heal it. Mm. And, and that is, I think, one of the things that people should wisely be cautioned about because it can be very destabilizing and early in, you know, probably 13 years ago when I started doing EMDR, I did a calm, safe place with someone. And it was a very, you know, visualization exercise, calm, safe place. And it became very destabilizing for her. Like she couldn't function for days. Mm. And what I've learned since then is how even being safe might not be safe for someone where those emotions might not be okay. And so um, I get a little bit, I, I, first of all, I think people, AA is proof that when people have gone through something, they can help other people. So I don't want to say that that can't ever be helpful, but I get a little bit nervous for people when I hear people saying, well, I healed my trauma and this is how I did it because everybody is so different. And I've learned just through treating people that what works for one person can be too much too soon for someone else Mm -hmm. and can really, you don't want to do harm. So you, you, that, that is the advantage of kind of, I think, understanding the brain and the defense mechanisms and some of these deeper layer of things, because you want to assist somebody in healing without re-wounding them. Well, there's two levels to that, isn't there? There's the re-wounding somebody because it's too much for somebody. And there's right. also the, that might not work for them because they're a different person. And now you've now given them another thought process of, well, it worked for them. It didn't work for me. What's wrong with me? And it's now it's just right. compounding that and making that situation worse. So exactly. yeah, I can, I can understand that. I can completely understand. Right. So, so how do you deal with these objections then? Cause I imagine, you know, right. uh, this is, this is me as a bloke trying desperately not to be sexist, but I'm thinking about my, my, my mother and I'm thinking about my wife who is a mother. And I think both of them, if you were to put them in that situation would say, I exactly, as you said, I have to be functional. I have to take care of the family. I have to be able to do the business. I, I haven't got time to open up the floodgates and start unpicking things. I just want to be functional. I just want to be able to, you know, they're almost looking for treatment to the symptom, right? I can't sleep properly. I just want to be able to sleep properly. I don't want to deal with the issues that's causing that. So how do you, how do you typically handle that? Um, you know, I think you help them see that first of all, the work, just because it's deep, doesn't have to be painful. 
Okay. I'm not saying things don't come up, but that it's a, it's a part of nurturing yourself better, not just picking up scabs and, you know, getting stuck in it, that you really are just learning to be the caretaker you already are for other people, for mm. yourself. So you help them see that. And then, you know, so many women I work with, and I, as a mom can relate to this, you know, you read something, you go, oh my gosh, did I do that with my kid? Or you learn something, you go, oh, I wish I would have known this when I had little kids. And I'm like, you Definitely. know, we're all just on the journey of learning and growing, but there is nothing that you don't do for yourself that you don't do for your kids. When you take any amount of, or, or your relationship, like you take any amount of healing it makes you more present in your relationships. When you regulate your emotions, you help your kids more. When you sleep better, you're a better version of yourself tomorrow. So I really think um, just saying that, first of all, it doesn't have to eclipse your life. <laughs> you know, you are in one way or the other, you are responding to emotions and external stimuli all the time you know, the, the emotions, the stimuli, you're just changing the internal response to a mm. softer, gentler, more nurturing one so that, um, you know, so that we're not constantly waiting for the situation or the relationship or something on the outside to resolve. Cause I think that's what we hang on. Like as soon as we get out of the pandemic and everything's back to normal, <laughs> yeah, right. Or as soon as I get out of this job and I'm not working so many hours, or as soon as we get to this, you know, well, once the kids are sleeping through the night or once our schedules aren't so hectic and there's a sense of safety in that and thinking, I can try to control the environment or I can wait for this to change or I can make everybody happy with me. And as soon as everybody's happy with me or I make X amount of dollars, right. then I'm going to feel easier. But if we're honest, you know, if we're in a season of overwhelm, the stress from the outside just kind of boils over and bubbles up what's already in us. Correct. Yeah. So, absolutely. So, so when there's pressure from the outside, we can validate that th there is a lot of collective stress in our world and in our environments right now, but there's always going to be one stressor or the other. And so we take so much control back when we say I can control, soothe, manage. And when I can be calm inside, I can fully engage and get the enjoyment out of the things that I've, that I've learned mm. and, and heal in the right order. It doesn't have to be like getting hit by a freight train you know, going into therapy once a week and getting hit by a freight train and then not getting up for two days and, you know, or feeling all in our head. When we do things in the right order, mm. we can do it calmly, gently, softly, and, and lead them to a place of just being a better nurturer inside. Um, and I just, you know, it, as just saying that a client comes to mind who just been through a lot as a kid, you know, I'm a therapist, so I, I'm careful about like sharing too many details, sure, a lot of, a lot of things, but she had overridden it. She had become, you know, super successful mom, wife, still trying to take care of the family that didn't necessarily serve her well. And recently she said, I feel like I've wasted so many years. I, you know, she'd been doing therapy 10, 15 years, probably on and off at different times, sure. but it's not wasted time. She was getting all the information that she needed. And once she could plug it in and get it to the right place, it was able to really resonate. And it just made me feel so good for her because she'd worked so hard. She'd worked so hard to get out of her situation and physically she had socioeconomically she had sure. 
but she was still stuck in the distress. And so just to hear her say that she could feel free from and enjoy, because right now her life's in a good spot. You know, she has freedom to do things. She has, you know, amazing kids. She has a good marriage. She has all the things that she could enjoy, but she wasn't enjoying them. So it just, Mm. um, yeah, it just makes me feel good to see people be able to experience joy when it's present. And then conversely, you know, I had someone who had avoided therapy for years until she got to a really terrible point, you know, did the work and, um, tragically lost her child last, last year. And, but she contacted me in the fall. I hadn't seen her for a while. And she said, I am so glad I did the work when I did the work, because I don't think I could have handled this. And I mean, obviously that's a, (laughs) I mean, probably the worst thing I could imagine happening. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but to hear her say that she felt equipped to deal with it. And I think that's, I mean, it was just, you know, you're aching for her and you're like, I am so proud of you because when you know that you can handle that and grieve, allow yourself to grieve through the process, life becomes a lot less overwhelming. And mm. so, um, Yeah, I just, I love seeing people be able to make those shifts and truly change not only how they experience life when it's good, but how they can handle it when it's hard and, and it changes, changes family legacy. You know, there's generational trauma and there's generational So, yeah. This might sound like a strange question. Are you allowed to show emotion? Do you show emotion? Because like that, those two examples that you gave, I think. I would have been really overwhelmed with emotion at hearing the positive side, but I also feel like I'd have probably been sat on the sofa crying with them at the beginning bit. I mean, like I, I have, have two young children and, and that, that right there is my worst nightmare. I wouldn't even say it out loud. I don't think I could, I really don't feel like I could handle that situation. Yeah. I, no, I will go so far as say I don't, I really couldn't handle that situation yeah. like that. Like I, I cannot imagine that pain. And, and I know you're a parent and you, you absolutely love, you know, you love right. your kids. So how do you have to separate that at the beginning part of that conversation? How does that work? It's so when I first, again, you know, 20 some years ago, when I first started therapy, I was working in, I was doing, you know, domestic violence battery groups. And I was also working in treatment centers with kids who were so severely abused. They've been taken out of their homes, six, you know, foster care, been successful. So I was dealing with both, both levels and children and adults, I think a very complex, you know, trauma. And I would, I mean, I would just come home and cry. And I mean, I just teared up in every session, but, and I was embarrassed about it. I'd be like, I'm supposed to be professional here. I was supposed to, you know, uh, but I don't think you can, I don't think you can be a part of someone's healing if you don't care about their experience. Sure. It's a good point. And so uh, when I had a real big burly guy, again, this is 20 some years, a real big burly guy, you know, just like, you know, the whole look like he could be on a brawny package. <laughs> you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. I know you're from the UK, but you know, lumberjack type. And he was telling this story about something that had happened to him when he was a child. And I just couldn't help. Like I just tear came to my eyes. And later he said, you're the first person that ever cried for me. Wow. I think when you are able to authentically be in a compact, have compassion for someone's experience they see it mattered. Mm. You know, their pain was seen because if it had been seen and if there was compassion around it at the time that it happened, it probably wouldn't still be 
as heavy as it is now. So um, I, you know, and there's times where I've, I've been through a lot of my own um, trauma in the past few years with a really sick kid. And it would be, I would think, I don't feel equipped to do this today. Like I've just been, you know, bawling all the way to work. I've been, you know, in my closet crying and I would think, Oh Lord, like, how can I help them when I am so distressed? And I would just say, I just, okay, I'm just going to check it at the door. But what I found is like during that season, someone would say, this was like, you helped me so much or this was so on some of my worst days. And, you know, from a spiritual perspective, I believe that was God from mm. a human perspective. I believe it's just that the deeper we feel our own emotions, the deeper we can connect with someone else's. And so in that setting, I wasn't tied up in my own emotion, but my, my learning and working through and being able to have great compassion for my own experiences just made me all the more available to be compassionate for theirs and to help. And when you can do it, then they see, I can do this. I can, I can relate to my experiences this way. I, Mm. it is, it does matter. I am worthy. So I don't really focus too much on trying to shut myself off. I do focus on trying to do the things with clients that I do for myself, self-care and, um, manage my own emotions and take care of them because, you know, hard things are going to come and we want to be able to celebrate when it's joyous and we want to be able to grieve when there's sorrow. I, I, I just want to say that, I mean, I appreciate we're getting close towards the end of the interview here, but I have so much admiration for you for being able to do that. I really do. And and it's, it takes a really strong person to be that in touch with their emotions and be able to do that. The only thing that I can come close to, and I, and I, I'm at this point, do I want to say ashamed to say I ran away? I don't think I was ashamed to say I ran away. I think I needed to run away. I was, I was this many years ago. I've never shared this on a podcast, actually. And I was seconded to a, a new division that I'd never worked in before. Uh, and I was sent to a rape victims unit. And I lasted two months. And I lasted two months because I don't think I slept the entire time I was there. I just, uh, it was, it was the, was, I mean, I was I was the guy, right? And a lot of the people there weren't were men. A lot of the a lot of the victims were women. So I wasn't allowed in the room at the time. I'd be in the other room behind the one sided glass kind of thing, uh, the two the two way mirror, um, and you know we'd be making notes and, and things like that. But it was horrific. And there to this, I mean, we're talking well over two decades ago, and I can still see some of those faces. Right. Like I can still hear some of those stories. They they will never leave me. And I, that was such a bizarre feeling because I felt such compassion and emotion for those people. And then at the same time was going home being like, I'm supposed to be trying to help them. And I can't, I, I can't even process this. Like, I don't know, like, I, I want to tell them that it's all going to feel better, but like, how do I tell them it's going to feel better when they've just been through that? Like, that's probably the worst thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Like it, it genuinely, I went home and I, and I said to my ex-partner now, and I said, she said, are you okay? It took me about three hours to speak. And I said, I feel like I've just seen a part of the world I didn't know existed. <laughs> like there's a whole other dark side over there that I knew nothing about. Uh, and it's terrifying. And and I, I, for my own sanity, for my own emotional well-being, I, I had to, I said to them, I can't do this. I'm so sorry. Like I really want to, but I just, I'm not strong enough to do this. So the fact that you've been doing this for so long, the fact that, 
uh, and we won't go into it, obviously in too much detail for personal reasons, but the fact that you've been through your own struggles as well, and there's been so much happening in your own personal life to still be there and be that pillar of strength and support for the people is just, it's really admirable. I don't know. I don't know what else to say. And like, thank you on behalf of everybody you work oh, with. That's that's really you. powerful. You know, I, in your situation, Phil. I mean, I do. I still have. I mean, I somebody shared with me something a couple of weeks ago that I'm like, wow, I've been doing this a long time. I didn't think there was any amount of, <laughs> you know, evil perpetuated on people that I had not heard. And I heard something, and it bothered me for days. You mm. know, and I just kept thinking about it. And I called out to. She'd never shared it, and I called, reached out to her, and said, you know, I just I was thinking about you. I know that's a lot. Are you okay? And and she later then said like how helpful that was, and it just meant so much to her that I, that it was that I was still thinking about it. Wow, but you were wise. You were wise to leave that situation because that that wasn't for you. I think mm-hmm. we're each we have something we are designed for in our unique experiences in the past sure. make us. And so like the way you have been able to help other people get confidence to grow their businesses and take their mission to the world and reach other people. And I think there's such wisdom in that in knowing when something isn't the right fit for us, you know, and I think when we are designed to do something it fuels us it gives us energy we never get tired of it you know we want to learn from it so in that situation i would say you know you were exercising a lot of self-awareness and a lot of self-care it wasn't a lack of strength it was wisdom in saying look there's this is activating something in you that's dysregulating if you're Mm. dysregulated you have to be in a regulated state to help someone who's not so i wouldn't say that as a weakness i know there are certain um areas that i you know i i started out wanting to work with kids and that was really hard for me because i just i felt more helpless in that situation because i couldn't change the environment that they were living in or the adults and i just that that I would be crying at home at night. Like I just wanted to get them yeah, out of there. I wanted, you know? And um, so that was not the best place for me. I always like working with adults because I say you are empowered. You have choices. You do not have to be a victim. You, you know, you could, you're, you're fully able to make all these choices and they've had so much time. So I get to see the resiliency. Like I can see in them how they've overcome and where they can't see it. And I can see you've already won. Like you've already won. You just don't know that you've won. You've already escaped and conquered. You're already an overcomer. You just don't know it yet. That's and beautiful. So, um, yeah, I love I- it. I, I, well, I love you. I love your work. Thank you so much for, for this. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. For everybody who's uh, here at this point, I imagine they've uh, they've probably had a tear in the right at some point whilst listening to this and they're, they're feeling empowered to, to have this conversation with you. How do they do that? And I know we, you've been working on some new things at the moment to, to take right. your message global. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I, you know, I'll just include, first of all, thank you so much for having me here. Thank and, you for being uh, here. And I'm glad that you were, um, you know, I'm glad that you were felt educated or moved by something. Can I ask first, what is your takeaway that you might have? What was something? Yeah, of course. With you? I think my my biggest takeaway from this uh, has been 
I think there's probably two actually. I think the, my my biggest one that stands out first, so I'll go with that one first, is is the feeling aspect. It's the if you're not if you're not feeling it, you're not going to be able to achieve it because that lower brain wins, right? So you can try and do the positive affirmation stuff. You can try and do all that. You can try and deal with this on your own. You can try and block it out. But if that's what's happening in the back, then uh, that's a big deal. And I think the second thing that really stood out to me was the fact that people aren't, uh, and I include myself in this aren't going to be thinking about the problem. They're going to be thinking about the symptom. They're not thinking about this was because of a situation or this was because of something that happened when I was younger. And this is, this is now, you know, a programming essentially that my mind has decided to play over and over again. Um, you know, they're, they're not seeing that they're not sleeping isn't connected to something that happened when they're six or seven years old or potentially even earlier. Um, so I, I, I think that, what really stands out to me from what you've said here is that you can be incredibly successful and still have some um, desynchronizations that you need some support with that can help you to move on. And that's not a weakness. It's not a flaw and it doesn't even have to be in your, you know, in your eyes, a trauma uh, to still be having an impact. I think that's really powerful. Okay. Yeah. And if if your listeners, if it did resonate with any of them as it did you, I'm going to include just a Calendly link. Um, I do have, you know, I do have individual one-on-one help, but I also have a group um, coaching program, which women have been giving amazing results for. I'm really excited about uh, just helping people. And so if people are interested in that, they can, you know, click the link, they can schedule a 15 minute call with me and we can kind of uh, determine whether or not it would be a good fit. And if, if there's nothing I can do to help them, I can try to point them to other resources or kind of identify where they are in their journey and what kinds of strategies might be beneficial for them along the way. And so, yeah, if people want to reach out, I'd be happy to have a chat with you. No, I highly recommend they do. I mean, if you've listened to this the right way through, you know what an amazing person this is and why I was so excited to do this interview. So check out the show notes below. You'll find the Calendly link there. Definitely book in your call. It's only a 15-minute call. It's not going to take you very long, but uh, you know, it could potentially help you move mountains in your journey. And um, you know, as Rochelle said earlier, even if you're you're quite a selfless person and you're thinking about putting your family or your business or your children or your spouse or whoever first by being able to, to do this work on you, you can actually give more to them. So uh, there's no reason why you shouldn't be booking that call and, and having that conversation. Rochelle, thank you so much for being here. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed the interview. Uh, lots and lots of food for thought. Thank you so much, Phil. I really appreciate being here. And thank you for what you do. Thank you for having me. And I look forward to touching base with you in the future. Absolutely. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. Billionaires in Boxes, empowering one billion entrepreneurs, one podcast at a time. Billionaires in Boxes, steady hustle, no stopping. Making it happen, put words into action, and quitting is never an option. No time to be a loser, gonna live the life that you